Luke, a brief recap of last week for those who weren't here. So Luke is the writer of the Gospel of Luke, and he is a very educated man. And we looked at last week, we looked at who he was and how we can be sure of the fact that his gospel is reliable. So there's a couple of ways of that. Um, he was a doctor. Uh, he researched all his, all of his gospel. It was all taken from eyewitness accounts. And that's pretty much how we can be sure that what we're reading isn't just some story. It's actually historical fact. So as many of you here can probably relate to, I was born in the early 2000s. And throughout my childhood, I have grown up with superheroes. So whether that be in books, films, comics, they've just been, they've been there. And I've always looked up to them and I thought, oh, you know, that's so cool. But I've always wondered, like, about their lifestyles. What would it be like to live a superhero life? Or, even more so, if I was writing the story of the next superhero, what would their life be like? How would their lifestyle be? What would their parents be like? What school would they go to? So I just wanted to get your ideas on that. If you were to create a hero who saved the world, what would they be like? An underdog? Yep. Any other ideas? I think especially with everything going on at the moment, I'd make sure that they like fought for equality, especially with all like races and all religions and everything like that. Yeah, definitely. Someone is just. Okay, one more. I think um, you sort of hit it, like hit the nail on the head, really. Just um, saying just someone for everyone to look up to, someone like a, a role model that every single person regardless of their background or anything can just look and think yeah I want to be like them they they make me want to be a better person yeah that's a really really nice way of putting it okay cool right so as you've kind of touched on like a hero needs to be someone you can look up to generally I mean just going off kind of superheroes that we know they'd probably come from a relatively affluent background thinking kind of Bruce Wayne Batman you know Iron Man probably relatively well off like they would be quite well educated they come from a place that people knew people would know them people might respect them but that is actually in direct contrast to the greatest hero that has ever lived who through his life death and resurrection saved every single one of us not just sat here today but across the entire world so luke chapter one chapter one verses 26 to 38 they detail the prophecy about Jesus' birth. So would anyone like to volunteer to read that? So that's Luke 1, 26 to 38. Or you can do like half and half. Um, I'm easy with anything, really. I'm happy to split it. Okay, so Hannah doing the first few verses. Anyone else keen? I'll do the last few, if you want. Yeah, okay. So uh, Hannah, if you do 26 to 32, and then Catherine, if you do 32 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? 
The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. That's great. Thank you very much. So in this passage, we see Mary, uh, we see an angel, and the angel appears to Mary, and he describes the impossible. There's, there's no two ways about it. What he is saying to Mary is impossible within our human understanding. And it's really important that in Luke's gospel, that we actually don't just gloss over these verses, that we actually take the time to understand what they mean, why they're here, and what they mean for us today. So how can we be sure of the virgin birth? What would make Luke risk his credibility as a historian by detailing something so outlandish in his book? Well, thankfully, Luke gives us four reasons, um, kind of through his character and personality. So the first thing to apply to these passages is that Luke is obviously very well researched about matters. Uh, so he gives us a date, a time and place. So if you look at verse 36, uh, where it says, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. If you read the verses between verse four and 26, it's talking about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. So basically it's saying that this is happening six months after Elizabeth um, was told that she was pregnant with John the Baptist. And so that, that pinpoints it at around January 5 BC. So actually Jesus was born in September, October, rather than December. We just celebrate Christmas in December because tradition. So that's the first thing. He gives us a date and a time so that we can be sure that this, like, this actually all fits in with the, the rough time scale of things. So the next thing that Luke gives us is he gives us a place, Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And this, this fulfills that Jesus would be a Nazarene, uh, seen in Matthew 2.23. But interestingly, Nazareth is not exactly the most desirable place in the world. I feel like nowadays it's kind of been like glammed up a little bit. Like you kind of, oh, you think that's oh, a nice cute little village that Jesus was born in. I had a stable, I had an inn. Oh, the inn was full. You know, they had to go to the stable. He was born in the manger. Very nice. But if you actually dig into it a little bit more, you find that Nazareth was a place that had been despised throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Like it's often mentioned and quite interestingly, in 1 Kings, Solomon, son of David, so he started off, you know, he was a wise ruler, but then he went, he went a bit downhill. He ended up with approximately 700 wives, I think, just forging military alliances. He was more focused on worldly wealth rather than maintaining a relationship with God. During this time, he got into a lot of debt. And as a result of this financial struggle, he actually tried to give away the entire north region of Israel. So if you imagine you've got Israel kind of like a rectangle in the middle you've got like the sea of galilee and then as south you've got jerusalem north you've got north you've got nazareth so he tried to give away pretty much like this section nazareth included to a neighboring king called hiram of tyre which is modern day lebanon and he was the ruler there and he was like look please just take this i do not want this part of my land which is quite interesting because especially back in those days land land was equal to money the more land you had the wealthier you were so the fact that Solomon was wanting to give away this portion of land completely for free, 
to a neighboring king who might one day be a threat really just shows that, that he didn't really care about it too much. And then even more astonishingly, Hiram, king of Tyre, actually refuses this land. Like that would be like someone going, oh, do you want a free car? And you being like, no, I don't want that car. Do you know what I mean? That's that's kind of the, the levels that we're working with. Like Nazareth was hated. It was the like the worst place in Israel that Jesus could have been born, like to an outsider's perspective. Yeah, it was it was like the I don't know, the, the worst place imaginable, basically. It's quite interesting to see that these that these values were actually deeply rooted in the geographical demographic of Israel. So obviously Israel is composed of 12 tribes and there was actually a north-south split between them and 10 of them rebelled uh, against uh, the king and two of them. So that was uh, Judah and Benjamin in the south, which is where Jerusalem was located. So basically you kind of, you have this, you have this split and it, I don't know, it's, I guess it's kind of like the, the north-south split in England. I know that we're from all over the country, you know, all of England's great, but there can be some, you know, there can be some like misconceptions like, oh, you're like posh southerners, or oh, I don't want to talk to these northerners with their funny accents. But so that's, that's kind of like what it was like back then. And the, like the south was viewed, the south of Israel was viewed as like the pinnacle of Jewish culture. It was like everything that was excellent about Israel. So yeah, these feelings, these ill feelings towards the, the north were still present uh, 800 years on during the writing of the New Testament. And quite interestingly, this actually comes from one of Jesus's disciples, Nathaniel. So we can see in John 1.46, Nathaniel's mates, uh, this is when the fishermen, they go up to Nathaniel, they're like, yo, we just met this dude. He's called Jesus. He wants us to follow him. Oh, by the way, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel turns around and he goes, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Which is quite interesting just to see the extent of which Nazareth was looked down upon by everyone else in Israel. So basically what I'm trying to say here is if you were trying to make up a hero to come and save the nation of Israel and the whole world, he would not come from Nazareth. He would probably come from Jerusalem, but no, Jesus comes from Nazareth. And the only reason for this is because it would be true. Like you're not going to make up something if it's going to make them look bad. So that's a bit of background about Nazareth. But another interesting thing to consider is, as we learned last week, uh, Luke's gospel is totally comprised of eyewitness accounts. So like that makes us wonder, how did he get these verses? How did he get verses 26 to 38? What do we think? Um, I'm not sure, but I would guess it's like from speaking to Jesus. I don't know, something, something like that. Like, oh, would you grow up? That's, I don't know, guess. Yes, yeah. no, so that's a good guess. And it's quite close to that. So I would say that he must have got these from Mary, who was actually there at the time. Because so Luke was written uh, from 60 to 62 AD, and he researched from between 57 and 59. And we know from the Bible that Mary was quite, um, she was quite young when she gave birth to Jesus, probably a teenager. So then you can assume that but 5 AD to 57 AD, if she was a teenager, I know, say 16, 17, then she's going to be, she's going to be old, but chances are she would still be alive. So I would say that he probably got these from Mary and that's, that's the only way that he probably could have got them. So therefore this must be accurate. Like there's no reason for Mary to lie about this. 
like she was there she experienced it it's probably still incredibly vivid in her memory even 50 plus years on so therefore this must be truth so it's coming it's coming from mary and yeah he's, he's referenced the time he's referenced the place so that's that's the first way that we can know that the quotes impossible virgin birth did actually happen so the second way is that uh as we know luke is a doctor he says it as a doctor and i know last week i was like yeah he's a doctor but quite interestingly it actually says in the bible that he is a doctor so paul wrote in colossians 4 14 our dear friend luke the doctor so we know we know for a fact that he was trained in the medical profession and chances are he was also trained in first century gynecology and he, he would have known how how medicine worked and how biology worked and that can be seen actually through him approaching childbirth from the woman's perspective uh, if we look at the uh the verses how many times is joseph mentioned isn't he mentioned like once yeah that's absolutely right it's literally just the once in verse 27 when luke says to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named joseph a descendant of david that's all we know about him because that's kind of all that Luke needs to say about him, because he's, he's approaching this from a medical perspective. Unlike Matthew, he was, uh, he was a Jew, and he was kind of writing for uh, Jewish readers, so he would want to kind of portray that in a sense. So in Matthew's Gospel, you've got a whole, a whole like, a couple of verses about, you know, Joseph's dreams, the angel who came to visit him. But for Luke, we just have, we just have a brief reference to him because he chooses to focus on Mary. That's also seen in the later part of the verses where he talks about, um, he uses medical terms such as conceive, give birth, whereas Joseph, he plays quite a minor role. Now, that's just quite interesting to consider because obviously back in first century BC, a man's opinion and perspective held far greater weight just because that's the way that the culture was, that's the way the society was. Like if you were writing to convince someone you would you would definitely focus on a man's point of view which is why it's fascinating that luke instead chooses to focus on mary a a young girl who no one really knows about which just clearly highlights that this actually must have happened like if luke was making this up he definitely wouldn't have picked a young girl's perspective and to be born in nazareth so yeah luke as a doctor he's medically trained and he knows that the virgin birth cannot happen within our human understanding. And that last part within our human understanding, I believe is the most important thing when we're looking at these verses, because without that, it just creates a conflict. But if we realize that our human understanding is limited and that God is limitless, then it really, it puts into perspective how some of the amazing things in the Bible can actually happen. Um, yeah, he knows that his God can do amazing things. And the good news is that the God in first century BC is the same God today in 2020. So the third way that we can be assured in the virgin birth is that Luke knows his Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't explicitly reference them, but he clearly knows his stuff. And there's clear links to Isaiah in like the angel's words. And it would be obvious to any Jewish readers reading this that, oh, okay, this guy's talking about the Old Testament. He knows that this is humanly impossible, but it is possible with God. So like I was saying earlier, it's critical that we do not put God into a box. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, 
but I think it's quite a nice perspective how we shouldn't try to limit God. We shouldn't try to like confine him because he works above and outside human understanding. So I don't want any responses, but I just want you all to consider any challenges in your own life that you might be facing. You know, you might be thinking, this is crazy. I cannot deal with this. How, like, how will I ever overcome this? But I just wanted to say that whatever's going on, even if you can't see a way which it can be solved, a way out, God can, because God is far greater than we could ever imagine. And yeah, I just want you to have hope in that, that no matter what's happening, there's always God there and he is higher and far greater than we can ever even begin to dream of. So back to the Old Testament, talking about Isaiah's prophecies, they can be seen in angels' words, as I've said, and they come from Isaiah verse 714, which states, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So Emmanuel means God with us, which is pretty accurate because obviously God came down to earth in human form to to be with us and ultimately to give up his life for us but it's quite interesting actually the l the suffix at the end of emmanuel it stands for elohim which is basically like of god and if you look at jesus in hebrew i believe translates to like deliverer rescuer so if you kind of put those two words together you've got jesus and emmanuel then you're left with deliverer of God, rescuer of God. So we can clearly see that this is this is all part of God's plan, which he has, which he's been laying out for Israel since the Old Testament, since right from Genesis 1. Jesus is the culmination of thousands of years of history in one man. So the fourth way that Luke shows that it's clear that, you know, this actually did happen is... We know that he's a scientist, but it's also clear to see that he's a scientist who believes in more than science. I mentioned last week that he uses certain words such as healing, angels, demons, the most out of all four Gospels, which you would think is it's a bit strange considering his analytical scientific upbringing. But from that, we can clearly see that like his intent must have been accurate. Why would he write about all these things if they didn't actually happen, if, if he hadn't thoroughly checked? He records extra miracles compared to all the other Gospels. And we know that he's just not making these up because he was diligent in his fact checking. He's a doctor. So we know that he's aware of the earthly facts. You know, it's humanly impossible. But he also knows that heavenly facts are greater than earthly facts when God speaks. Another important thing to notice through these verses is that it starts with God. God sends the angel to approach Mary. It, it all comes from God. And that's really essential to remember because Jesus is a gift from God. And this is essential because salvation starts with God. So I just want to briefly touch on salvation as a concept. What do you guys all think that salvation is? What does it mean to you? Yeah, just some general thoughts on that. I think it's like help when you like really need it. Okay. Isn't it like the bringing back from like bad things? So it's a bit like redemption. So it's like showing that no matter how much bad we do, God and Jesus will always bring us back to good. Yeah. Usually people associate like hope and all that with salvation. So 
you like hope for salvation in times of trouble and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the I think between like the three of you, you kind of got it in essence. Salvation is uh being saved and it's being saved by by God. And that's through Jesus, uh through Jesus' death and resurrection, which we'll come on to later. But yeah, I think the most important thing about salvation is it's it's like redemption. So through salvation, we are redeemed. So we were talking about salvation and basically how salvation is the restoring of everything that was lost. So if you take Adam, the first man, through the original sin, he lost the personal relationship with God. And basically through Luke's gospel, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the new Adam basically and he has come to restore and save what has been lost so salvation is that gift of being inherently saved through jesus's actions through his perfect sacrifice yeah so that's that's salvation and the fact that salvation always starts with god means that there's nothing that we can ever do to earn it it's not like you know how many times we do this is not like a checklist oh have you done this today oh there's your salvation if not it doesn't work like that it is just purely a gift that we have to humbly accept and you can see that in ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 where paul writes it is by grace you have been saved through faith also a gift from god but not by works i think that's just really important to remember that there's nothing that we can ever do to earn salvation um, sorry what was that verse Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. Thank you. That's all right. Right, yeah, so salvation is basically, it's being saved through God. It's that restoration of the ability to have a relationship with him. And it's important to remember that salvation always starts with him. Nothing we can do to earn it. Uh, it's a gift. And Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, also a gift from God, but not by works. So with that in mind, we've got to remember that this same God who created the world, the heavens, the earth, the solar system, everything that we have ever known, he wants to go to this length to be able to have a personal relationship with us because he loves us that much. So it's important to remember that Luke is, he's not denying medical facts, but he's insisting that God can overrule them. That can also be seen through Matthew 19, 26, where Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So I think that's just really something to take to heart that, like I said earlier, we've just got to trust God, basically, that even if it seems out of our control, out of our understanding, that he's, he's got it in our best interest. And even if something seems impossible, it's not impossible with God. So, yeah, we must trust with Mary's faith, seen in verse 38 where she just says i'm the lord's servant may your word to me be fulfilled which i think is just a stunning display of faith this young girl who's just met an angel and the fact that she just like she is just so trusting in that way so we just got to really try and respond to that that god is this committed to saving us so to conclude all this i wanted to ask you a question if you if you wanted to convince someone that you're right that what you're saying is right that your point of view is right that I know this happened rather than this happened. How would you go about it? Like, what steps would you take? I provide evidence. Yep. So yeah, you give detailed evidence. And a bit like that, I'd use like facts and statistics. 
Yep, nice. So you'd you'd like say your point and then you back it up. I would find common ground. Find common ground. That's a really good one. So like you'd start it slow. Yeah. So like you'd you'd get to know the other person. You'd be like, oh, okay, like you know this thing. I know this thing. That's kind of like a starting point. Anything else? I would make sure that my view is informed when I'm actually saying I'm like an educated decision, not just something I made up. Yeah, definitely. So you'd kind of you'd look inwardly and be like okay am i actually have i researched this yes i think that's a really good really good set of answers so i'd say that if yeah if i was going to be trying to convince someone that my point of view is correct about a certain event i would probably yeah as you said catherine start by making sure that i'd fact checked everything that i've been really thorough in my research that my point of view had been developed you know from study research thinking about these things and then like ben said i would i'll probably look for common ground you know, I'd be like, oh, okay, we both agree on this. And then I kind of, that builds trust. And then from that point, you can say, okay, you agree with me on this. Here's my opinion on this thing. Oh, by the way, here's all the facts and evidence to back it up. And that probably, I would argue, be the, the best way to convince someone that your point of view is correct. If I wanted to convince someone that my point of view is correct, I wouldn't start with something totally wild and outlandish. So we've got to remember, going back to why Luke's gospel was written. So Luke wrote his gospel to Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, in verse 3. And he's basically trying to convince Theophilus, who was involved in Paul's trial in Rome, which, I mean, Daniel's not here, but if anyone's interested, um, it's believed that Paul was under house arrest between 60 and 62 AD. So it's likely that it would have been sometime at the end of that period. So yeah, he's writing to convince Theophilus that Christianity isn't dangerous, that it's the kind of true, it's like the true faith, basically. So that brings the question, why would he, in the first part of the first chapter, say to Theophilus something like this, something that is humanly impossible? It's a completely wild and outlandish. And you'd think that if you were trying to be smart about it, if you were creating something that you wanted to convince someone with, you wouldn't start with this unless it was true. And that's, that's a really important thing to remember because this concept of the virgin birth is completely unprecedented. It has never been done before and it has never been repeated. It's nowhere else in history. It's just completely alien. Like no one's ever thought, oh, you know, this could have happened. So what does that leave us with? I think that really leaves us with two options. And the first is that Luke is making this up. Now, if that is the case, We've got to think about, actually, hang on, is that really the case? So if he's making this up, we know that he can't have copied it because it's never been around before. So, okay, if he didn't copy it, then maybe he imagined it. But from what we know about Luke, you know, he's a doctor. He's well-educated. He thoroughly researches. He's a scientist. He's got a very logical mind. To think that a man like Luke would be dealing in some concept of the imagination I don't know. He doesn't really strike me as the overly creative type. This seems to me like a man who deals in hard facts. And as I said earlier, if he's writing to convince Theophilus, which he is, why would he risk his entire credibility of the remaining 23 chapters of his gospel with this if it were made up? Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense. That really just leaves us with one alternative. And that is that it has to be true. There is no other alternative because 
it just logically doesn't make sense if it wasn't true. Why would you record this if you were making it up? And this is just one of many insights into God's incredible power. And the best thing is that his power is the same then in 5 BC, and it's the same now in the 21st century, and it's available to all of us. So I just really want you to take that away and just remember that no matter what might be going on, that we have a God who is above all of that. He's outside of human understanding, human comprehension, and he works in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. Thank you.